Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Christ is All and is in All, Beyond Identity Violence and Social Hierarchies. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 5th, 2007. Armatya Sin, Harvard professor and winner of the 1998 Nobel Prize in Economics, still remembers the day 63 years ago when Kader Mia stumbled into his family's front yard in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Bleeding from knife wounds and begging for help, Sin's father rushed Kader to the hospital where he eventually died. Sin's recent book, Identity and Violence, explores this memory of his as a bewildered 11-year-old boy. Kader was a Muslim day laborer who was murdered by a Hindu thug, one of the thousands of people who died in Muslim-Hindu riots that erupted in British India in the 1940s. The strange thing, says Sen, was that even though the rioters shared an economic class identity as abysmally poor people, the partisans demonized each other with a reductive identity of violence. In other words, they reduced each other's human identity to religious ethnicity alone. The illusion of a uniquely confrontational reality, says Sin, had thoroughly reduced human beings and eclipsed the protagonist's freedom to think. In this week's epistle, the Apostle Paul describes a radical alternative to every ugly manifestation of what sin calls identity violence. For those who follow Jesus, writes Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and is in all. The nearly identical version of this verse in Galatians 3.28 adds that there is, quote, neither male nor female. And we might add our own modern equivalents. No Iraqis or Iranians. No North Koreans or North Vietnamese. No blue bloods, no blue collars no imperialists or terrorists, no gays or no straits. With a single sentence, Paul repudiates the idea that humanity is fated to hate, that there's an inevitable clash of civilizations, or that class warfare is unavoidable. Contrary to the powerful and relentless propaganda we are force-fed, we need not succumb to race baiting, to gay bashing, to ethnic slurs and stereotypes, or to demonizing a nation as an enemy, an evil empire, or an axis of evil. Instead of insisting that, quote, you are either with us or against us, the Christian says, I am unconditionally for you, no matter who you are, where you live, or what you've done. And God is for you far more than I could even wish to be for you. 
Paul challenges the believers at Colossae to see every person as a human being who bears the image of its creator. To the Ephesians, he employed a different but equally subversive metaphor. He says that Christ himself is our peace and that he shattered the many dividing walls of hostility that raise barriers between people. Paul was not a romantic idealist mouthing pious platitudes, nor was he blind to the actual social conditions that existed in the churches of his day. He warned the Colossians about the, quote, anger, rage, and malice, end quote, that can destroy communities. He didn't imagine that gender identity was unimportant, that ethnicity shouldn't be celebrated, or that religion or your mother tongue don't matter. He didn't suggest that we should repudiate these markers of human identity. Instead of repudiation, Paul recommends renewal. Instead of letting these very real and powerful aspects of being human plunge us into identity violence, Paul urges us to renew or transform them. He describes this renewal in several ways. It's like moving from death to life, like putting off your old self and putting on a new self, or like living in what he calls a heavenly way rather than in an earthly way. It's nothing less than a return to or rediscovery of your basic humanity. And if you look carefully enough, you can already see glimpses of this new social reality. We see it, for example, among children. When I taught at seminary in Nairobi in the summer of 1990, our family lived in the dormitory with students and their families. My son was seven at the time, and next to eating the delicious mandazi that were served at tea time every morning, his favorite part of the day was playing soccer with his Kenyan buddies. We have a team picture, as it were, in which he's the only white boy among a dozen African kids. The first time we showed this picture to our friends back home, he eagerly identified himself. I'm the one in the red shirt. I think that was the most colorblind experience I've ever had. Sometimes we see a renewed and transformed humanity among those who have, who have experienced its worst evils. Eva Kaur and her twin sister Miriam spent 10 months in Auschwitz. Along with many other twins, they were subjected to Mengele's horrific experiments. When Kaur returned to Auschwitz for the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the camps in 1995, she did the unthinkable. She read out loud what she called her official declaration of amnesty to Mengele and the Nazis. Although some Jews were understandably outraged at her act, Kaur insisted that to extend forgiveness without any prerequisites required of the perpetrators was what she called an act of self-healing that delivered her from the pains of her past. Eva Kaur reminds me of my friend Nate. Whenever Nate spoke to my classes about his experience as a Holocaust survivor, 
He repeatedly rejected the idea of the collective guilt of all German people. Instead of demonizing his enemy, Nate affirmed, in fact, that there were so-called good Nazis. One day, he said, when he was working in a warehouse, he noticed a sandwich wedged between some boxes. Although he was starving, he resisted taking the sandwich because he knew that it might be a trap. But a young Nazi guard kept silently nodding his head at Nate to take the sandwich. And so he did. When he walked past the Nazi guard to exit the warehouse, their eyes met, and Nate saw tears streaking down his face. There are powerful forces, some of them deeply personal, some of them overtly political, that try to extinguish the basic humanity that resides in every person. In the film Letters from Iwo Jima, director Clint Eastwood tells the story of that epic battle from the vantage point of the Japanese, our enemies and the losers. Only in this film, we, America, are the enemy. 22,000 brave Japanese soldiers defended their island for 40 days against 70,000 American troops. And in the end, 20,000 Japanese and 6,800 Americans perished. In one scene, a Japanese soldier reflects on a letter that he took from a dead American soldier. We were taught that the Americans were cowards and savages, he said. But when I read this letter from his mother, I realized that he was just like me and my mother. The German Lutheran pastor, Martin Niemöller, who lived from 1892 to 1984, actively protested Hitler's anti-Semitic measures. He even spoke to the Fuhrer in person. For that and other activities, he was arrested and then imprisoned for eight years, first at Sachsenhausen and later at Dachau from the years 1937 to 1945. But like the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Colossians, Eva Kor, my friend Nate, and the Japanese soldier on Iwo Jima, Martin Niemöller saw beyond the tribalisms and social arc social hierarchies that threatened to destroy us. Niemöller once confessed, it took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He's not even the enemy of his own enemies. And now for further reflection. You might want to watch the documentary film about Eva Kor the title of which is called Forgiving Dr. Mengele. I got my copy of this film at Blockbuster Video. Then there's the book by Armartya Sin, Identity and Violence, The Illusion of Destiny from the year 2006. And then finally, contemplate the words of C.S. Lewis from The Joyful Christian. C.S. Lewis writes, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, 
arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence, which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. For books this week, I review Chalmers Johnson, The Sorrows of Empire, Military, Secrecy, and the End of the Republic, New York Metropolitan Owl Books, 2004, 389 pages. From George Washington and James Madison to Eisenhower's farewell address in 1961, some of our country's greatest leaders have warned about the dangers of standing armies and the military-industrial complex. In this second installment of what he calls his inadvertent trilogy about the costs and consequences of America's belligerent empire, political scientist Chalmers Johnson describes in meticulous detail the nature and extent of American militarism. In his first book, Blowback, he warned that our global militarism and predatory economic policies virtually assure retaliations for decades to come. He published that book, Blowback, about 18 months before the 9-11 attacks. And in retrospect, his warning now reads like a diagnosis. His third volume, Nemesis, published in 2006, is more like the autopsy. It describes our destiny with Nemesis, the goddess of retribution and vengeance, the punisher of pride and hubris. Unlike ancient empires, today America's imperial hegemony consists not of conquered territories, but of military bases. Today, the Department of Defense admits that America deploys 254,000 military personnel to at least 725 military bases in 153 countries. If you include dependents, the number of personnel goes to about a half a million. Nor does this include numerous secret and officially non-existent bases. Our own country is home to another 969 separate bases in all 50 states. It's hard to believe, writes Johnson, that at the beginning of World War II, our regular army consisted of 186,000 men. Today, it numbers 1.4 million. 
Nor is this any longer a citizen's army, but instead a professional warrior class, 41% of whom are non-white. Johnson's book documents our militarism beginning with the 1898 Treaty of Paris that ended the Spanish-American War. Woodrow Wilson's fervent belief in America's moral exceptionalism and obligation to export democracy to the world. The incestuous marriage of the military to the incredibly lucrative for-profit arms industry and the merry-go-round of former military and corporate personnel. America's sale of weapons to the world are violations of international treaties and courts that have generated global distrust of much of what we say and do. The roles of oil and Israel. And then finally, the predatory nature of economic globalization. In a final chapter, Johnson suggests four sorrows of our militaristic empire that he now considers all but unavoidable. First, a state of perpetual war. Second, the loss of democratic processes and institutions. Number three, endemic lying by the state, glorification of war, disinformation, and propaganda. And finally, financial ruin. Empires don't last forever, he reminds us, and he mentions that in the last hundred years, nine empires have collapsed. Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, Great Britain, France, the Netherlands, the Soviet Union, China, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottomans. Despite our deep delusion about our good intentions and moral exceptionalism, we have no reason whatsoever to expect that history will treat our belligerence and hubris any differently. What we should expect, says Johnson, is a meeting with the goddess Nemesis. For film this week, I re review a marvelous docu documentary called Let the Church Say Amen from the year 2004. In this documentary, director David Peterson takes us to World Mission for Christ International, a tiny black Pentecostal storefront church just a few blocks from the nation's capital. I think I counted four pews in the sanctuary, but the 30 or so parishioners have followed the advice of a sign on the wall inside the church, keep the fire burning. They take up offerings for each other to fix a car and pass out free food and clothing in the neighborhood. The film follows the stories of three people in particular. Darlene is a single mother raising eight kids and studying at night to become a nursing assistant. David works in the church's homeless shelter and wants to buy a house. Ciotis, or Big C as he's called, is a street singer who wants to cut his first gospel CD with his 10-year-old son and who wants to find out who murdered his, own, his other son. You'll have to watch the film to learn their fates. The dignity, resilience, and joy of these urban saints reminded me of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 38, which speaks about people of whom the world is not worthy. 
Director David Peterson never prompts his subject, and there's no narrative voiceover at all. He simply lets these people live their lives and tell their own stories in their own words. And believe me, it's a story worth seeing. The film Let the Church Say Amen. And finally this week, we've posted a poem by G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton lived from 1874 to 1936. The title of the poem is called The Beatific Vision. Through what fierce incarnations, furled in fire and darkness, did I go? Ere I was worthy in the world to see a dandelion grow. Well, if in any woes or wars I bought my naked right to be, grew worthy of the grass, nor gave the wren my brother, shame for me. But what shall God not ask of him in the last time when all is told, who saw her stand beside the hearth, the firelight garbing her in gold? The Beatific Vision by G.K. Chesterton Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August 5th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.